That's a slick segue there. Is that Nebraska, I assume, is only good record? Uh, dead man walking sounds correct. But it's, it's the same style, right? Right, right. This is hell. Okey -doke. Live from the United States, where there are far too many people who love to hate. This is hell. In fact, so many people love hate in this country that one of the two major political parties which dominates U.S. politics, governance, and media appears to have an agenda, a party platform that is not only about hating those who are not like them, through policy that, policies that commit cruelty and violence against who they see as the other, violence that can turn deadly. But they're also just generally throwing around hate like it's pennies. At least that is what our guest suggests today. In a few minutes, we will have the return of Maya Shenwar, who's going to be on to discuss her Truth Out article, Right-Wingers Push Death Penalty Reinstatement Bills, as part of Hardline Agenda. The same forces that are attacking abortion, trans health care, and racial justice are also pushing for more executions, which you can find at truthout.com. You can follow Truthout on Twitter, at Truthout. Maya is director of the Truthout Center for Grassroots Journalism. She is also Truthout's editor-at-large and board president. Maya is the co-author with another past guest, Victoria Law, of Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms, which we discussed with her and Victoria on the show back in 2020. She is also the author of Lockdown, Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work, and How We Can Do Better, which we talked with her about back in 2014. Maya is co-editor of the Truthout Anthology, why do you serve who do you protect police violence and resistance in the United States? You can follow Maya on Twitter at Maya Shenwar. That's S-C-H-E-N-W-A-R. You can find out more about Maya at her website, mayashenwar.com. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Kugler. Dan, it has been three weeks since we last saw each other. Anything new in your world? I had an uh, article published in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Really? Yeah. What was the topic? Uh, Roberta Flack. Oh, no kidding. They, uh, my sister-in-law works for it, and she said they needed freelancers, so I, uh, I'm now a Britannica freelancer. Oh, that's great. My sister, uh, because she is a biologist and a herpetologist and an entomologist, all these different science PhDs that she has she used to that was one of her regular sources of income was writing like uh, we need a profile of Max Planck and so she would have to write it up and so yeah she said it was a pretty good consistent work for a while yeah it, it looks like it and it'd be fun what so. was the thing that you learned about Roberta Flack that you did not know before let's, let's see uh, she was from D.C. and uh, D.C. is a hard city to 
come up in uh, as a musician because it kind of more into the government and stuff and doesn't have the infrastructure musically for a lot of groups uh there's some exceptions uh i believe george clinton had a base there but he was more in detroit but detroit uh dc musicians kind of uh come up together a little bit because it's a small community is fugazi from I DC? think so. Yeah. I, I, I actually were quoted in one of the Roberta Flack articles. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, which was crazy. But they were also talking about D.C. is a tough city to come up in musically. So it was funny. I was like, didn't expect to see them here. I, I saw them at the Crumbling Congress Theater about eight years ago, ten years ago, and it was absolutely fantastic except for the pieces of the ceiling that were falling on the audience. So immediately following today's show, I have to see my surgeon's assistant for a post-op appointment to find out if I am healing correctly from my most recent surgery, which I hope I am because I'm sick and tired of being cut open over and over again. When I was a kid, I spent a lot of time in hospitals. Uh, Before I was a year old, I had double pneumonia, whatever the hell that is, uh, that my parents said nearly killed me. I also had acute appendicitis that required emergency surgery. There was a surgery on one of my eyes to keep it from drifting. I also had a bilateral or double hernia for me betting my dad I could lift our family refrigerator unlike my recent umbilical hernia which is far worse than even a double hernia and at least I had at least a couple of other emergency room visits for serious injuries all before I was in third grade. But what I forgot about all those surgeries is afterward You actually feel like someone has stabbed you and cut you open, and it sucks. So fingers crossed, I'm hoping there are no more complications as there have been with the other half dozen surgeries I've had in the last seven months. Uh, But before we get to any of that, Dan, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? What are you going to do with all the coins you are hoarding? What are you going to do with all the coins you are hoarding? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can post it on our Twitter feed or you can uh, at, at this is hell radio, or you can direct message it to us via our Twitter feed. You can also post it at Patreon. You can post it at Discord. Wherever you post it, we will be reading all of your replies as we move forward this week. So we got some reactions from one of the past interviews we replayed while I was out for the last couple of weeks with the surgery and recovering from it. The, co- the uh, conversation that got so much attention was when we played on the 3rd of July this year, but originally aired on the 5th of July in 2008 because we like playing really trollish interviews, apparently, and doing them around the 4th of July. Uh, That conversation that people were somewhat upset with was with Rick Shankman, who was on to talk about his then-just-published book, Just How Stupid Are We Facing the Truth About the American Voter. Rick is an Emmy Award-winning investigative reporter, New York Times best-selling author, associate professor of history at George Mason University, and he also blogs at How Stupid, all of which should have been huge red flags for us. But he's also the founder and editor of History News Network, a website that features articles by historians on current events, which is absolutely fantastic, and we've had many guests on who have had work published at that site. 
Coincidentally, the History News Network announced this year, only a couple weeks ago, on June 23rd, less than three weeks ago, that, quote, we will be ending our relationship with the George Washington University due to a lack of funding for its ongoing operations. This is a situation which will result in the suspension of publishing new content, hopefully temporarily, while HNN explores rehoming possibilities. In other words, other places where they can store their site. However, they are currently working on efforts to do that. So early reports of the History News Network's death may have been exaggerated. All that said, as I was in bed and on a cocktail of painkillers last week, I suddenly had a vague memory of our conversation with Rick, and it was not a good memory. Matt L. commented in her post of the 20, uh, 2008 interview with Rick Schenkman on just how stupid we are, writing, I just listened to this episode for a, on a long drive, and good lord, what a bizarre blast from the past. How fascinating. In 2008, Rick Schenkman asserted that the country is more democratic than ever before, exclamation point. He insists that politicians watch polls and hang on every word of the voters' wishes. He specifies that voters have more power during the primary election process than ever before. And it seems like he's insinuating, although he doesn't exactly say, that voters can get an accurate picture of the situation which they need to participate in democracy by listening to the news. Since that 2008 interview... What a difference 15 years makes. We've seen multiple statistical studies indicating that the wishes of the voters are disfavored and the wishes of the moneyed interests are favored by politicians. We've seen a second presidential election where the technicalities of the Electoral College put the opposite candidate into the White House from the majority popular vote. The Democratic Party arguing in court that they have no obligation to be small-D Democratic and their administrators can coronate their candidates in any undemocratic matter they wish. The President of the United States manipulating primary choices by persuading candidates to drop out specifically in order to prevent the most popular primary candidate from winning. Multiple pundits, Andrew Sullivan to pick one example, writing openly and proudly that we have too much democracy and the people need less power. The popular media post-coronavirus, even though coronavirus is still going on, made a collective decision that the truth can now be called malinformation and must be concealed from people. I could continue, but obviously my point is that I don't think any amount of civic duty will fix the situation. The electorate is under direct and purposeful attack, and existing institutions must be overthrown before we can have any hint of a democracy. Given the above updates, it's not stupid that it's kind of, but it's kind of smart for average voters to check themselves out of the existing political system because it is obviously a waste of time. The preferable thing that the electorate ought to do is build alternative institutions that will make our existing anti-democratic ones obsolete. The alternative press is a good start and underway, but people are understandably more reluctant to commit their lives and livelihoods to causes like local mutual aid and local governance, when they're under such fierce economic and psychological pressure all of the time. And the powers that be wield such tremendous forces to quash competition. I would love to see Chuck bring Rick Shankman back on for an update and ask him about these more recent developments. First, Matt, thanks for the comments. You are spot on. I remember booking Rick Shankman because he would be on the day following the 4th of July. And he was going to go off on voters in the United States being stupid. I figured it would be a great way to introduce those who were listening to the radio and accidentally stumbled on our show 
into what exactly this is hell is all about. But during the conversation, I remember him saying things like, if you don't like it here, move to Russia, which is just stupid. Second, Matt, we will not be having Rick back on the show. He was so freaking wrong the first time. Why make the same mistake again? Finally, the only way we would have Rick back on the show would be to discuss his 2012 movie, which he wrote and directed, Abraham Lincoln versus Zombies, which is surprisingly historically inaccurate considering it was written and directed by someone who helped start the History News Network. You can contact us via email at chuckatthisishell.com, via Facebook, where you can message us or comment on our posts at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. DM us on Twitter at thisishellradio, or leave a comment at our Discord, or send your thoughts via Patreon if you are a subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. And if you do, we'll likely share whatever you write on air. Coming up, hate is a political party platform. We will also have This Week in Rotten History. Dan will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell. And we'll tell you everything that's happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. And talk about grief. The misery that comes along with many far right-wing beliefs today are purposely, intentionally contributing to the suffering of so many that it verges on dare I say sadism and that's not an overstatement when you see the pleasure on reactionaries faces when they espouse their bloodlust returning to this is hell Maya Shenwar is on to discuss her truth out article right wingers push death penalty reinstatement bills as part of headline uh, hardline agenda Maya welcome back to this is hell it's been far too long it has thanks so much for having me back it's great to be here and I already learned something that there's a movie about <laughs> zombies and Abraham Lincoln. I know. I thought it was only about vampires. Who knew that there was a precursor about zombies? Yes. Yes. Fascinating. <laughs> really fascinating. So uh, I, there's some breaking news that I want to get to before we get into your writing, and that is that earlier this week, courts reinstated the Tennessee ban on care for transgender youth. And now there are new reports coming out that Tennessee Attorney General Jonathan Skirmetti uh, has demanded and has actually obtained personal private medical records for trans people in Tennessee. What do you think that might mean for p trans people in Tennessee, for citizens in the United States who are trying to avoid uh, discrimination uh, based on the way that they view their gender? Well. I think that this needs to be viewed in this larger context of actual institutional violence. So we are talking about basic medical care that youth need in order to live their lives. It's survival care. Trans youth face such high rates of suicide, such high rates of mental health problems, physical anguish, based on not being able to access the survival care that they need. And so these bans, which are sometimes categorized as kind of like a niche issue, they're actually a survival issue for so many people. And I think that as we, as we look at what's happening around the country in Tennessee and beyond, 
we have to see it that way. We have to view it as violence, including physical violence, because it's directly, directly threatening people's lives. And I think that that we also need to look at how this is prompting a refugee crisis. People are fleeing their states in order to get medical care, in order to get their basic survival medical care, um, because their states are are banning it and not allowing it. And I think that the the privacy infringements also are part of are part of this. Like very often when we see these types of repressive and institutionally violent measures, we also see accompanying heightened levels of surveillance. And that's happening here as well. And so I think that we need to treat this with the utmost seriousness and also understand that it's getting worse. So a lot of these lawmakers who are attacking the basic rights of trans youth are also attacking the rights of trans adults. They're kind of opening the door by restricting or banning medical care for youth on the road to banning medical care for all trans people. And this is, again, life-saving care that's just on the chopping block. You called this institutional violence. We've had plenty of discussions on this show about institutional racism, institutional sexism, institutional misogyny. You write as right-wing legislators accelerate their push for violent measures like banning abortion, outlawing trans health care, and shutting down racial justice curricula. They're also advocating for another type of institutional violence, reinstating the death penalty and making that penalty more likely to be carried out in states where it is all ready legal. How do we see, how do we understand women's reproduction, gender identity, and the campaign against the purposely misleading titled critical race theory campaign even? How do we understand each and every one of those things differently, even institutional racism and institutional sexism, when we do see these as an action of institutional violence? And do we miss the forest for the trees when we don't see this all of these as institutional violence. Yeah, I think when we look at them outside the context of violence, it's much easier to kind of view them as debates, as issues that have multiple sides that should be discussed or something like that. But we see how on each of these issues, they are matters of life and death. So of course, we've already seen people's lives being threatened because they can't access abortion, which was a a fear that all of us have had all along and has been ongoing since, of course, even when Roe v. Wade existed, we, we saw people not being able to access abortion. We know that banning trans healthcare is deadly, as I explained earlier. We know that when you don't challenge racism ingrained in school curricula, that's deadly because you're not acknowledging this country's foundation on white supremacy, on the deadly violence of slavery, and you're raising people up to not have that knowledge. And that knowledge is essential to not repeating those mistakes of history or those those genocides of, of history. And I think that 
things like banning sex education in schools. We also have to look at that as, as very serious violence. They're, you know, the kind of sex ed that's necessary in schools right now includes extensive education around consent. And in an era where there's been more attention on sexual violence, sex ed actually should be funded far more than it is. So all this kind of package of right-wing attacks, I think when we see them individually and collectively as violence, we understand them much more clearly. And I think in the piece that I wrote about the death penalty, I tied that in, in, in a couple of different ways. One of which is the fact that it's the same people pushing for this whole slate of things, pushing for book bans, pushing for legislation that targets racial justice curriculum and sex ed, pushing for this repressive and regressive and violent anti-trans legislation, pushing these abortion bans. These are the same people who are now pushing these measures to reinstate the death penalty in states where the death penalty is abolished and to push for harsher application of the death penalty in states where it's still active. It's the same people pushing all of these laws. And I think that's significant because all of these types of laws are not only violent, but also specifically target marginalized people. And the death penalty makes it blatant. It's one of the most explicitly deadly things that the government can do. So when these right-wing lawmakers say, in addition to making trans youth more vulnerable to suicide and endangering pregnant people's lives, um, we're pushing to actually reinstate the death penalty. They're really showing their cards. Speaking of showing their cards, uh, Senator uh, Tommy Tuberville of Alabama, Republican of Alabama, who last week said that he was not going to allow for any promotions within the military ranks. Uh, this was in regards to the person who would be uh, in charge of the Marines. He had resigned, and they cannot put in another person into that position for a while because Tommy Tuberville said, I want to have a ban on all military personnel taking their family members or themselves going to another state where abortion is still legal to have reproductive health care. So there's that. And then this just broke today. Senator Tommy Tuberville said Monday that the racism of white supremacists is a matter of opinion. What is the connection that you see between the denial of white supremacy and then the denial of racism within white supremacy and the restriction of reproductive rights laws? Yeah, well, I think that all of those things are are very intimately connected and it it goes back to a denial of history and particularly the history of this country. And when, when you look back at the foundation of the United States, you know, built on slavery and then built on lynching and then built on specific racially discriminatory laws and all of these things built into how the fabric of the country, 
the way capitalism functions in the United States. And if you talk about the United States, you have to talk about white supremacy. And so I think that that's, that's like one piece of this. And reproductive justice needs to be really, really clearly built into that conversation too. And I think that this is something that's missing from some of the more mainstream abortion debates, but reproductive rights and decision-making have always been much, much, much less available to Black people, to Indigenous people, to marginalized groups. We know the government has undertaken mass sterilization campaigns of Native peoples. We know that the US government has sterilized large groups of people inside California prisons, particularly Black people. And we know that abortion access has been denied consistently to marginalized groups, including to, to working class and poor people because of simply the inability to travel for an abortion, the inability to take time off work for an abortion. And um, all of that has serious intersections with race as well. So I think all these issues are deeply connected and the attack on abortion needs to be seen as a racist attack in addition to all the other things it is. So in your opinion, then, why is this kind of support for institutional violence attractive to voters and often but not always politically effective? What, why do you, what do you think is driving that attraction to institutional violence, especially today? What happened? Uh, you know, I mean, I think that there's, there's a number of things going on. Um, one of them is that the fascists are really good at propaganda. <laughs> you know, which has always been one of the scariest <laughs> things about fascism. And they're very, very good at fear-mongering. They're very, very good at playing on people's existing assumptions, looking for kind of the openings. So for example, with evangelicals, a lot of evangelicals might not actually innately agree with some aspects of this violent agenda, you know, some bullet points on the Harlan agenda. But, you know, they've been part of this decades long movement to end abortion. And so that's, that's being uplifted as a piece that that can be fed to them, you know, um, in a very, in a very twisted light. And I think that, like, part of part of what goes along with this is this fascist sense of like loyalty to a particular leader, you know, so Trump, the obvious, I mean, like coming back to the death penalty thing, he's been pushing the death penalty as part of his campaign to an extent that you might outside of like this fascist loyalism, people might think is ridiculous, you know, like reinstating the death penalty for drug crimes. Um, bringing back firing squads and the guillotine and all of this. Um, but because fascism includes this element of like extreme loyalty, people are like, oh, Trump said it, you know, there's this. 
And also, I do think that it's playing on people's existing bigotry, existing fear, and kind of saying saying the quiet part loud in a way that people who want their racism affirmed are very happy with, you know? Um, and I think that all of that is very scary, but also it's not the end, you know? It's like a particular group of people have been taken in by this kind of propaganda, but I also, yeah, I just want to put out there that it's not the majority of of people in the United States who are going to look at this this agenda and say, "Oh, that sounds like something I'm on board with." But a lot of the people talking about it are very, very loud. So, like for example, and make themselves seem like a majority. So, for example, we have these parents' rights groups like Moms for Liberty. You know, I'm making quote marts with my with my fingers. Moms for Liberty, which claim to represent parents, like this giant group of people, parents, and the rights of parents. And they, in their parental bill of rights or their their idea of what parents' rights are, it's the right to make it so that your child, can be in a school where no books about queer and trans characters exist, where there's no racial justice curriculum, where your kid will not be taking sex ed. Like all of these are considered parents' rights in their minds. But obviously most parents aren't on board with that. So it's kind of like, also I think we need to look at the rhetoric they use, which is very sweeping and makes it seem like they're representing a lot more people than they are um, as, we, as we sort through who actually supports this. And you point out that the fact that right-wing lawmakers are now including the death penalty in their state or slate, I'm sorry, of racist, misogynist, anti-trans, anti-queer, ableist policies should not surprise us. The death penalty has always been used as a tool to maintain white supremacy and has consistently targeted marginalized people, particularly black and disabled people. But according to the Death Penalty Information Center, as of October 2022, by race, 42% on death row are white, 41% are black Americans, 14% are Latinx, and 3, uh, 3% fall under the category of other. That's 994 who are white and 970 who are black Americans. African Americans are only 13.6% of the general population, so there's a clear disproportionate amount of black Americans awaiting the death penalty. However, this is what the right would point out, there still are more white Americans on death row. How is the death penalty a tool to maintain white supremacy if more white people are on death row? Right. Well, I think... You made the first argument, which is, you know, around 41% of the death row population is black, but black people are about 13% of the US population. So there's a vast disproportion there. But also, I think we have to look at how the punishment has been grounded in white supremacy throughout US history and how various mainstream bodies from the UN to Amnesty International, uh, Human Rights Watch, ACLU, talk about the US's application of the death penalty as very obviously racist. 
Um, we know that states that have a history of enslavement and of more lynchings of Black people have a higher rate of death sentences for Black defendants. So we can actually trace hmm, like the history of slavery, the history of lynching, and then like more death penalty application for Black defendants. Um, we another kind of like historical line is as lynchings became less common in the first part of the 20th century. So extra legal killings of black people became a little less common thanks to the work of many brave activists and journalists. Legal executions of black people rose so that institutional violence targeted at black people increased. Um, and then I think we also have to look at how people convicted of killing white people are about 17 times more likely to receive the death penalty than if those killed were black. So the application of the death penalty also has this emphasis on white victims. Um, and we also see in terms of victims even built into some of the legislation that's currently being proposed, they'll say, well, if we're reinstating the death penalty if a police officer is the one being killed, you know, and we can we can see the signaling there. Um, and actually, also looking at wrongful convictions, we can see some of the disparities rise further. Um, there was a report a few years ago, I believe by the Registry of Exonerations that showed that black people we're about seven and a half times more likely to be wrongfully convicted of murder than white people in the United States. And so thinking about that in the context of the death penalty, I don't think the death penalty should ever happen, but I think sometimes it's useful to think about wrongful convictions. I, I'm putting that in quotes also, because again, I don't think this, this punishment should ever be applied. But um, looking at that and seeing that sometimes people are actually innocent of the crimes that they're executed for, and more often, those people are Black. Institutional racism and oppression have been very much a part of the United States since, United States since its founding. How far would ending the death penalty go toward having a more equal system of law? Would that be a tidal wave of change in justice, or would that just be a drop in the bucket? Well, I think it depends how it happens. And I think it's very, very important to abolish the death penalty overall, because for, for very obvious reasons, like I said earlier, it's one of the most blatant forms of institutional murder. And it's it's devastating. It's a tragedy anytime someone is executed. And at the same time, I think we want to be really, really careful that we're not advocating against the death penalty by replacing it with what organizers call death by incarceration, which is basically life sentences without parole, where a person is sentenced to die in a cage. And I think that like that's that's one of the problems we have in this country where we implement reforms that still are are inflicting violence and death on people. 
instead of being more creative and thinking about like, okay, how could, how could we do something really liberatory? Um, but what's really awesome is right now, a lot of the coalitions that are advocating against the death penalty are also advocating to end death by incarceration. And there are a number of campaigns um, release aging people in prison in New York, which has been very active, the Abolitionist Law Center, the Drop LWAP Coalition, and a number of other groups around the country are working to end death by incarceration alongside these, these efforts to end the death penalty and to show how this idea of a death penalty is not just confined to an execution, to a lethal injection or a firing squad or whatever method they, they come up with next. So is the death penalty or a life sentence, has, is there any evidence that suggests that those are deterrence to violent crime? Because in, in your response to the last question, I started thinking about how the violence committed against prisoners and whether they're on death penalty or a violence of putting them in, giving them a life sentence, those would seem to continue that cycle and enable violence. So is capital punishment and a life sentence a deterrent to crime or do they or deterrent to violent crime or do they enable more violence? Yeah, I think you put it really powerfully and I think that that's exactly what's happening is they're continuing the cycle of violence. There's no evidence that these different types of death penalties actually deter violence. People who are about to shoot someone aren't like, wait, do I live in a death penalty state? Let me think about this. That's not, that's not how you prevent violence. And in fact, it inflicts violence actually exponentially because it's the violence against the person who is subjected to state sanctioned murder it's their family it's what impact does that have on their community and on and on and on and what what impact does that have you know on future generations so it it is a cycle of violence and i think we're really stuck in a very i think caged mindset when we think, okay, well, even, even if the evidence shows that that doesn't deter violence, like what else can we do? Like to me, we need to be thinking about, okay, how can we actually <laughs> prevent violence? Like as opposed to just responding it, to it with more violence and greater violence. Returning to This Is Hell is Maya Shenwar. She's on to discuss her Truth Out article, Right Wingers Push Death Penalty Reinstatement Bills as part of Hardline Agenda. You can follow Truth Out on Twitter, at Truth Out, and you can find out all of the, find all the work of Truth Out at truthout.com and show your support for Truth Out by going to truthout.com as well. So you write that the current death penalty bills span a range of measures. In May, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a law allowing the death penalty, penalty to be imposed in cases of 
sexual battery against children defying a Supreme Court ruling. The law was promoted by many of the same people pushing anti-LGBTQ and racist policies. Terrifyingly, its passage coincides with a new Florida law, now being challenged in court, that effectively bans youth attendance at drag events, attempting to portray drag as a sexual danger to children. This is an intensely harmful misrepresentation, you write. So I'm going to stop there in mid-sentence because... How is capital punishment for those who commit sexual battery of children and criminalizing drag events both seemingly equally in the name of supposedly protecting children? How is that an intensely harmful representation of what drag is? Why is that a harmful representation? Yeah, well, I think that this is this is showing us kind of this larger picture of how the right is pushing these harmful laws is it's in the name of children. It's for the children. And we see this happening a lot of times in the criminalization realm. So in the work I do about prisons where a terrible new law passes, where thousands more people are gonna be incarcerated for drug crimes or whatever it is, it's for the children, it's for the children. And that's, that's what's happening here too, where this, this law uh, allowing the death penalty to be imposed in cases of sexual battery against children, that's actually, there's a Supreme Court ruling that states the death penalty should not be applied in the, those cases. So why, why is this coming up now? And to me, and to a lot of people, it's significant that it's coming up at the same time as they're talking about all of these actually very educational, important efforts as sexual dangers to children, including drag story hour, which, you know, I take my child to. It's a it's a very well-known and beloved event at libraries, at bookstores, at schools, where drag performers come and read excellent children's literature to kids. And also offer them a space where they can you know, explore gender identity, understand further the expansiveness of gender, you know, like, so it's educational on multiple levels. It's the opposite of a sexual danger, but it's about the rhetoric that the right is using, the terms that they're kind of like staging this in, and this kind of alarmist danger, danger, danger push that allows them to do all kinds of nonsensical and horrifying things in the name of protecting kids. And this is a long-term campaign. We've talked to guests about the 1980s stranger danger kind of yes. culture, which was all completely misleading, just mm -hmm. like what we are seeing right now. They're using uh, children as political props in order to not only make their kids more paranoid and fearful of the world around them, but also to make it so they have some sort of uh, people feel like they have compassion for children when it seems like very much the opposite. You said you take your uh, kid to uh, drag story events. The two words that the right loves to use about these are indoctrination and grooming. And I can't think of anything more of an indoctrination and grooming than having prayer in school or having to do the Pledge of Allegiance every day. That's indoctrination and grooming. So do you, uh, how, let me phrase this differently. 
How is Drag Story Hour not indoctrination or grooming, a place where people who are uh, maybe have different gender identity are trying to brainwash kids into having a different gender identity from one that they already have? Yeah, I mean, I think Drag Story Hour is really the opposite. It's about expansiveness and acceptance and inclusion and authenticity, like encouraging children to just be who they are and explore and live in their authentic selves as opposed to like bringing some identity or some ruling down from on high, which to me is, you know, this idea of brainwashing is like, you do this, you do that, you know, um, to, to harmful ends. And drag story hour is actually the opposite. It's um, a number of things that the right hates, one of which is information, another of which is books, like, you know, reading to children, particularly contemporary literature, and sometimes it's books that have nothing to do with gender, and sometimes it's books that include a gender non-conforming character or, you know, a trans child or something like that. But usually, you know, a lot of the books don't have to do with gender at all, so it's about reading together. It's about community building, like authentic community building, which is another thing that I think the right really hates because it's kind of the opposite of this authoritarian top-down, like, you know, sit in a classroom and shut up and take our ideas. And then also just having a space where there are drag performers, there are people coming who are playing with gender, really, you know, and looking at it as something that can be explored and can be approached with joy and interest as a as opposed to being approached with either fear or with a hard line like this is who you are shut up you know which is to me brainwashing um and so i think i think it's a space that directly counters brainwashing and and those types of kind of restrictions. And I think that like those types of spaces are going to become ever more important for children and absolutely for trans children and non-binary children, gender non-conforming children, but really for all children. All children deserve the opportunity to test the limits, to imagine, to play, to explore, to think, to try on different experiences, you know, and I think that the more of those imaginative experiences we can create, the better, especially against the backdrop of all these increasingly fascist legal attempts to curtail our rights and our freedoms, really. When it, <clears throat> excuse me, when it comes to uh, death penalty laws possibly reemerging in Delaware, you quote Kristen Froelich, a, a member of Delaware Citizens Opposed the Death Penalty, telling truth out in an email, for the last seven years since death, Delaware's death penalty has been inactive, we have had the opportunity to be free of the pretense that the death penalty improves public safety, supports victims' family members, uses taxpayer money wisely, and is applied fairly. 
if there is no evidence, as we were talking about before, the death penalty makes us any more safe, then why do we put up such a pretense that it does or will? If the death penalty does nothing for public safety or for the private concerns of loved ones or is a good use of public money or is applied fairly, why is there a desire to believe deadly violence as retaliation can keep us safe? Why do we want to believe that? Yeah, it's a really good question. And thank you for bringing in Kristen's quote, because I think that's really important. She's a family member of a murder victim, and she is a longtime anti-death penalty advocate because the death penalty doesn't solve any of these problems. And in fact, it it makes them worse because instead of supporting victims' families, we have the death penalty. Instead of pursuing other ways to intervene in the face of deadly violence, we have the death penalty. You know, all of these things we've been discussing. And I really appreciate the work, especially that the family, the family members of murder victims have been doing against the death penalty. And so why do people stick to it? I mean, I think it's an I think it's a range of things. I think for right-wing strategists, part of it is fomenting this hardline agenda where death has to explicitly be on the agenda somewhere, you know, and this is the perfect place to put it because it's the ultimate fear tactic, you know, that you could actually be killed. This is, it's a standard feature of fascism to incorporate death penalties where you disobey a law and you're gone. So I think that's part of it from from that standpoint. In terms of people continuing to kind of believe in it ardently, even if they don't have those political goals, I think one aspect of it is certainly just a lack of imagination, which is encouraged by our political system. You know, our political system really stifles our imagination and the prison industrial complex stifles our imagination and tells us, you know, the way that you respond to harm and wrongdoing and violence is this you know, is violence. Like you have to respond to it with violence. And we've been trained into that mindset. Most of us from birth, you know, that this is just the system. This is how it is. And we hear so, so much rhetoric that, you know, people need to get what they deserve, you know? And I think that part of what it takes to dismantle that is some of this looking at what the motivations are looking at how these coincide with with forms of oppression and repression towards towards marginalized groups i was thinking about this yesterday because um i was i was looking through some of what israel has has done with uh pushes for the death penalty to reinstate the death penalty in certain cases and one case that they wanted to reinstate it for was quote unquote terrorism And so, of course, then the death penalty would be imposed toward Palestinians, you know, the same way the death penalty is imposed here disproportionately for Black people. But yeah, the way way it continues is this idea 
that has been instilled in us for so long that, well, this is just, it can't be helped. It's the way you respond to violence. And like, I think the more that we can dig in and show that it's not actually solving anything, the better. And also the more we can challenge ourselves to really expand our imaginations and think about like, well, what would it look like to have a world with less of this violence as opposed to just accepting an eye for an eye? You write that Alice, as Alice Kim wrote for Truth Out last year, right-wing actions to preserve the death penalty are happening against the backdrop of President Joe Biden's failure to fully end the federal death penalty, which was one of his campaign promises. Just for background, Alice co-directs the Justice Policy and Culture Think Tank and teaches at Stateville Maximum Security Prison with the Prison Neighborhood Arts Education Project. She is Director of Human Rights Practice at the Posen Family Center for Human Rights at the University of Chicago. In your opinion, why has President Biden not fulfilled that campaign promise? And what do you think is more of a political liability? ending the federal death penalty or failing to live up to that promise? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure why he hasn't done it. Um, He did instate this 2021 moratorium on federal executions, but he hasn't actually ended the practice. And I think there are people who will say, well, you know, a lot of the the federal death penalty cases are these high profile cases like Tsarnaev, you know, the Boston um, marathon bombing or Dylan Roof. And they, you know, the high profile federal death penalty cases, like why would Biden do something to not bring these people to quote unquote justice? Um, But obviously like, you can't take two cases and justify an entire practice. And for the most part, those practices that are justified based on two people get applied to to much wider numbers of people. and, And that's part of the problem here. And I think that what Biden is doing is not prioritizing it, you know, not not following through on a campaign promise that could be controversial, could be sticky. It's never a good political time for it. You know, he'll always be criticized by some of these hardliners. And it's it's disappointing. Obviously, we're not being disappointed by Biden is not a new experience. Um, but he still has time. And I think that this is the the federal front would actually be a really important place to challenge the death penalty, um, especially when the Republican contenders for the presidency in the future are so terrifying and certainly so pro-death penalty. And another thing I'll say about Biden that I think we really need to challenge him on, on this front is this idea of death by incarceration all the thousands of people that are languishing in federal prison who are right now destined to be there their entire lives. And President Biden has the power of clemency. He can actually grant commutations to people so that their death by incarceration sentences are over. So I think that's another 
point where we can be challenging Biden and saying words are not enough. So uh, you also write that, um, well, let me get to this question that I have about uh, wokeness to you, uh, because you write that while styling himself as a common sense Republican, Delaware State Senator Buxton has hit similar notes to much of the right wing on issues beyond the death penalty. In just the past week, Buxton, uh, this is written back in June, obviously, complained about a change from woman to person in a bill about postpartum mental health. On his campaign site, he stated that school boards needed to be empowered to push back on a woke mentality, which is always in capital letters, oddly. But what is that woke mentality that they want to push against? My understanding was, you know, I mean, first time I heard the term woke was, I think, late 1990s, early 2000s, that all that it meant was uh, a recognition of racial injustice, whether that's occurring today or happened in the past. So what's wrong with recognizing when people are victims of unfairness? Or does woke mean something more to those who oppose it? I think your definition is exactly right, that when they say woke, they're talking about just the most minimal pushes for racial justice, gender justice, forms of liberation for marginalized people, and they have to like and of course woke itself like their use of woke itself is is racist like the way they've used it and mocked it um and i think that we should look at that as a sign that they can't actually say what they're really talking about because if they did they would be saying instead of we're against wokeism they'd be saying we're against racial justice. We're against gender justice. We're against people being able to live their lives and make choices about their bodies. We are against people learning the truth in school. We are against people being able to make decisions about what their lives will be like and make decisions that allow them to survive and thrive. So that's why they're saying woke because they can't say that. So uh, you also write that we must acknowledge the lethality of the right-wing agenda more broadly, refusing to challenge the racism ingrained in school curricula is deadly. Uh, banning trans health care is deadly. Banning abortion is deadly. Banning sex education in schools is deadly. But Maya, do all these threats by the right allow them to take control of the narrative, so to speak, control the conversation by sensationalizing it and therefore a media insisting on a response to the most outrageous of claims? Is far-right sensationalism playing into the media's hands, forcing the opposition to engage in a conversation of the far-rights and the establishment media's choosing? Yeah, yeah, I think that absolutely is the danger is this sense that they are setting the terms of the conversation. And I thought about that even as I was writing this column that I I wanna talk about this ramping up of the death penalty. I wanna talk about these attempts to reinstate the death penalty in Illinois, in Iowa, in West Virginia, in states where we thought it was fine, but also if we even engage with these conversations, we have to be super conscious of not ceding ground to the right. 
And that's why I think at the same time as we talk about opposing the death penalty or opposing the reinstatement of the death penalty, we have to also talk about ending death by incarceration and abolition more broadly. We kept pushing for abolition more broadly because we want us we want to be fighting on our own terms too. You, we want to be fighting for liberation. And similarly, I think it's like as we push back against these horrific bathroom restrictions and these horrific laws that ban care for trans youth and are increasingly going after adults, we also have to be talking about what does it mean to actually pursue trans liberation, to make, make our spaces and our society more welcoming and more celebratory and more liberatory for trans people everywhere. And so we have to be doing both. We have to be addressing these right-wing attacks because they're not going away and we can't ignore them no matter how sensational their rhetoric is. And we have to constantly be asking ourselves, what does actual liberation look like? And we have to ensure that we are not shrinking our demands just because their demands are so outsized and so huge and so threatening. So how sustainable is this far right wing cult uh, denialism, this culture war of denialism? Are culture wars gaining in their effectiveness? It was once, it's the economy stupid, which is a horrible phrase. Right. It's a stupid right. phrase to begin with. Is the culture war uh, strategy gaining in its effectiveness relative to things like the economy? Are voters not voting with their wallets anymore as much as they're voting with their social identity? And that social identity is wrapped up in a denialism beginning with climate change and going through institutional racism and violence. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the question there has to do with the fact that conditions are intensifying, right? Like climate crisis isn't going anywhere, it's only ramping up. And this fascism, this rising sense of fascism also has, has threatened people and it has already taken so many lives. And, you know, Trumpism took so many lives, even if you look at COVID alone. So it's like there is a sense of, of real threat there and different people do different things with threat. Um, in terms of whether this culture war is sustainable in the sense of like, are right-wing people going to be clinging to these particular issues for this foreseeable future? I'm not sure. And I'm really careful about making predictions because I prepared the entire truth out staff for Hillary Clinton to win in 2016. <laughs> and, wow. And our whole homepage was planned out for the next day with, you know, stories about, well, like, you know, how are we going to push Hillary Clinton? So I try not to ever predict anything. <laughs> but what I <laughs> but what I will say is I think that that what we have on our side is the truth, an interest in people's actual lives as opposed to their deaths. And the fact that younger generations are for the most part seeing past this bullshit, right? And um, 
I think that one of the reasons there's been this immense focus on saving the youth is because the youth are already calling bullshit on so much, you know? So I think that although I can't predict how far into the future this particular war will reach, I do have a lot of hope for youth-led movements right now, and particularly marginalized youth-led movements for making actual transformative change, shifting these narratives and shifting policy and shifting the, the realities on the ground. One last question for you, Maya. We've been speaking with Maya Shenwar, who has returned to discuss her Truth Out article, Right Wingers Push Death Penalty Reinstatement Bills as Part of Hardline Agenda. You can read that article at truthout.com. You can follow Truth Out on Twitter at truthout. And you can show your support for Truth Out and all their amazing work, again, at truthout.com. Follow Maya on Twitter at Maya Shenwar. Find out more about her at her website, mayashenwar.com. As always, our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell. The question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, and this is the category this will be falling into. Our audience will hate your response. So, Maya, clearly, (laughs) the answer, right, is just simply voting Democrat, right? (laughs) Can I go hide under my desk? (laughs) (laughs) It is. It's kind of like a nuclear assault on us. Oh, gosh. I mean, here's the thing. Like, I I do feel like it's really important to vote against fascists. Um, I think it's really important to strategically vote in elections in ways that, um, that make it less likely that these types of attacks are going to ramp up um, for, for people who want to. I would never, like, force anyone to do that. And I know people act and strategize in all kinds of different ways. And also not everyone has the right to vote because of some of the same forms of repression that we've been talking about today. Um, But I think that if people are, are really motivated by and caring about opposing some of these violent right wing institutional attacks, then plugging into organizing is really the most important thing. Plugging into organizing, plugging into mutual aid, because so many of these attacks, including on abortion rights and trans rights, have put people into really serious survival level challenging situations. And so I would suggest people seek out mutual aid efforts that are supporting people in accessing abortions seek out mutual aid efforts that are supporting trans people who are needing to flee their states and just survival expenses in general. And also look into organizing around these these issues of criminalization, including the death penalty and death by incarceration, because there are efforts happening in every single state, whether or not your state is a death penalty state. And the the organizing is is where we're going to find hope, ultimately. In my opinion, um, yes, vote if you want to. And also, we have to act. We have to act. I think that's a great way to finish our conversation. Maya, thank you so much for being on the show. I promise it will be less than three years before we have you on again. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on. Show your support for Truth Out by going to truthout.com. Thank you so much, Maya. 
Thank you so much. Take care. Great to hear your voice, by the way. And if you're not doing anything on Saturday, July 22nd, come over for our uh, anniversary party. I saw. I would love to come. We're going to be giving away autographed books during our raffle. We're going to be giving away autographed books not only by historian Gerald Horn, but by a contributor at Truth Out, Flint Taylor. Oh, fantastic. That's awesome. I hope to see you on Saturday, July 22nd. Absolutely. It's on my calendar. All right. Thank you very much, Maya. Take care. Take care. Bye. The kind of stuff that starts fights at the dinner table. This is Helen. Please don't blame us if what we just discussed with Maya Shenwar starts a fight at your dinner table. I mean, sure, tell whoever it might start a fight with about our show because we could use all the listeners we can get. But we didn't tell you to bring it up at dinner. In fact, we've even warned you now that it would start a fight. That said, if you did learn something from our conversation with Maya and realized yet again Yes, this really is hell. So why isn't something being done about it? Show your appreciation for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber to our weekly Patreon podcast, bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by just visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can see all the ways that you can support completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell, and tell us how our listeners are responding on Patreon so far. The question from Hell is, what are you going to do with all the coins you are hoarding? Now, that's uh, the image that we have with it is taken by another producer, Richard Norwood, who uh, apparently he went to Chipotle. And there's a ba- on, on the bag of his food, it said that Chipotle is having a shortage of uh, apparently coinage. So that's why it came up. They need to go to my laundromat because uh, exactly. I go there for change. Uh, All the time. Because I've got, you know, a uh, uh, washing machine in the basement. So I just sneak over to the laundromat and then use the coins in your basement. And, yeah. And they're hip to it and they don't care. So <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, the qu- uh, uh, Patreon responses are we've got Essential who said, says perform a sock puppet rendition of the 1812 overture <laughs> for Nasser. Wow. Wow. Uh, uh, <sighs> Justin M. says, I'll never tell. <laughs> Carly Her- H. says, placing them all into a big pile to lay on top of, like a dragon, only it's just wheat pennies, so not a rich dragon like Bezos. <laughs> all right lot to impact there <laughs> yeah there is uh laddie says great for weighing down that walk into the river <laughs> oh man that's good that's dark <laughs> yeah we should check in on him. laddie <laughs> definitely uh little trippy dds says the uh, the electronic component industry is booming i'm melting down my pennies to copper ignots no that makes sense yeah. That, it does make sense. I see shinny men taking all the copper wiring out of everything that I put out in the alley. Makes yes. sense. Uh, Brandon says, put a couple of rolls in a stocking to make impromptu nunchucks and immediately knock myself out. Well, so people are weaponizing their yes. pennies. That's great Against to see. Against themselves. <laughs> yeah. Old Grouch, first, I generally pay with a credit card. 
Second, when I use cash, the coins are left with the rest of the tip. I do not trade cash for quarters to wash my car. But, but now you can use credit card at a car wash. I do have jars of coins from past years of hoarding. I use them as paperweights. Those I'm saving to throw at pigs in the next anti-war demonstration. Wow. Gonna be a bitch whipping all the paper fingerprints off first. <laughs> Jesus. That's a uh, detail. Is any more? Do we have any uh, more Patreon? Tom G. Toss them all into a wishing well that I assume is being installed on the back porch of Carrie's Lounge <laughs> in time for the This Is Hell 27th anniversary party. And thank you for the plug. Yes. And make a wish for solutions to all of the world's problems, which I suppose will put Chuck out of a job. <laughs> it will. Unless you'd rather I didn't. <laughs> and uh, uh, we've got a few more. Okay. Uh, Keith T., Melt them down and make a big one. All right. <laughs> Eddie says, chuck them. All right. I think that's a pun on yeah, your name. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nate the Great, invest half of them in low-risk mutual funds <laughs> and then take the other half to my friend Asiduala, who, wear, who works in securities. <laughs> Jeff Dorchin says, make... A little insider trading there, right. I think. Yes. And Jeff Dorchin says, make all the wishes. <laughs> and that's it for Patreon? Yeah. So the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Al, as always, they win their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Uh, so what is Jeff talking about during this week's Moment of Truth? I like this one. Uh Jeff schools a TEDx stoic. <laughs> I like that. I like that. We'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in rotten history, on July 10th, 1944, 79 years ago this week, the Italian professional soccer player Bruno Neri, who had stepped away from the game to become an anti-fascist partisan commander in World War II was killed when he and his troops walked into a German ambush on a remote mountain path in northern Italy. Okay, anti-fascist Italian soccer player during World War II. Got it. Neri, a talented midfielder known for his interest in things cultural and political as well as athletic, had for years nurtured a deep opposition to Italy's fascist regime. So take that, all of you sports fans who insist politics be kept out of sports. While singing national anthems and cheering displays of military might with fighter jet flyovers. In 1932, Neri had raised a few eyebrows when, at the grand opening of the new Giovanni Berta soccer stadium in Florence, he was the only player on the Florentina squad, Fiorentina squad, uh, who refused to make the so called Roman salute, Mussolini's term for what's better known today as the Nazi Heil Hitler salute. Think of Neri as the Italian Colin Kaepernick of his day. Neri went on to play for Italy's feared and respected national team in the mid-1930s, but with the coming of war, he scaled back his sports career, becoming a player coach for a provincial Italian team, while joining with a unit that ended up fighting against the so-called 
Republic of Salo, a puppet state created in northern Italy by the German Nazis as a place for Mussolini to pretend he was still a dictator after having been driven from Rome by the Allies, which I did not know about, or maybe I forgot. Bruno Neri was shot dead by Nazi soldiers at the end, at the age of 33. So, remember, the more you know about Nazis, the more they suck. This has been a public service announcement from your friends here at This Is Hell. Also in Rotten History, on July 17, 1973, 50 years ago this week, a Boeing 707 passenger jet operated by the Brazilian airline Varig experienced engine failure and made a crash landing just short of its destination, the Paris Orly Airport. Before the plane touched ground, several passengers were already dead, having inhaled carbon monoxide from a fire in the plane's near or rear bathroom. And you gotta wonder what the hell was going on in that bathroom. Moments later, the plane burst into flames, hot enough to melt the plane's roof, killing more people. Among the victims were the president of the Brazilian Senate and the Brazilian pop singer Agostino Dos Santos. Of the 11 survivors of the plane, 10 were crew members stationed in or near the cockpit. After putting on smoke masks, they instructed the passengers to stay in their seats. One passenger, a 21-year-old man, disobeyed the order and hurried in the front of the cabin, away from the smoke. He was the only passenger to survive. An investigation later conducted that the fire, which spread through the plane and crippled its electrical system, probably started from a cigarette tossed into a trash bin in the plane's rear lavatory. So while U.S. airlines banned smoking on flights beginning in 1988, it would take until 1997 for the European Union to ban smoking on all European flights nearly 25 years after the Varig airliner crashed near the Paris Orly Airport. Now that's rotten history, and this is Hell. Dan, who's coming up as our next guest here on This is Hell? We've got journalist Umar Farouk, who will be on to talk about his ProPublica investigation in Arizona water ruling. The Hopi tribe sees limits on its future. Arizona's unique method for awarding water to tribes was supposed to open up economic possibilities beyond farming for the Hopi tribe. Instead, the tribe says it has dashed their dreams of building a thriving homeland, unquote. Thanks to Dan Kugler for producing today's show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Hope to see all of you at the This Is Hell 27th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party that's happening Saturday, July 22nd, when doors open at 3 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. If you are taking mass transit, Take the Western bus to Devon and walk a few blocks east, or take the L to the Loyola stop and then take the Devon bus to Oakley and walk the half block east again. So that's Saturday, July 22nd, beginning at 3 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gaptooth radio show host, podcast host, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. See? We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>